The life of faith, let's face it, can be hard, can't it? And it can seem so pathetic, can't it, compared to what the people in the Old Testament seem to have. When you read of Enoch or Moses or Abraham, and you think, wow, I wish I'd lived then. Seeing God do amazing things, uh, seeing the Red Sea parted, seeing all these wonderful signs and wonders. Our life, I imagine, at times can seem quite tame, quite pedestrian in comparison with those heroes of faith. Where are the amazing things now? Where's all the excitement? Well, the hero, uh, Hebrew Christians, uh, our unknown author is writing to, are beginning to ask similar questions. Their life of faith had well been going through hard times. They, in fact, were tempted to ditch their faith in Christ and go back to their Jewish roots. After all, wasn't that faith the faith of Enoch and Moses and Abraham? Wasn't that the better life? All it seemed their life with Jesus had got them so far was suffering and persecution. As they'd had their stuff taken, as we've read. As they'd been thrown in prison. Isn't this life just pathetic compared to the heroes that we've been hearing of? Well, our author is writing to them to show them what real faith looked like in those Old Testament heroes. The faith that they had that kept them going, that persevered. He's writing to show them how they persevered in their faith. And how that same faith is ours in Jesus. He's pointing out the characteristics of faith that mean that they will keep going. That they won't ditch Christ. And we saw last week from verse 1 that persevering faith is assured of the unseen. Let me just read to you uh, verse 1 again. Hebrews chapter 1. Oh, sorry, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. What he was showing them is that a persevering faith is assured of, an, of the unseen, the spiritual realities that lie behind our day-to-day lives, the truths that help us make sense of what's going on despite what our eyes might see. It's assured of the unseen that God, uh, behind his frowning providence, hides a smiling face. But persevering faith is also being persuaded by the promises of God, trusting in what God has promised, more than what their eyes could see, more than their experience told them. And we saw some major figures last week who showed uh, what it looked like to live that sort of faith out in their lives. But look out for those as we carry on through, because really we're just continuing that same idea as we go through the second section. We're mainly going to look at two stories, two major stories of faith this morning, but we're also going to see some shorter ones sort of linked in, showing that life of faith that perseveres. The first one is Abraham. Abraham's story of faith was victory over death. Let me just read to you verses uh, 17 to 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Now to understand this, you've got to understand that actually Abraham was a hundred years old 
when Sarah had Isaac. And this was in a culture where you married young. They could have been married, if you think about it, for probably around 80 years at this point. 80 years and no child. The anguish must have been awful. The stigma in that culture on Sarah must have been awful. Infertility in that culture was seen as a sign of displeasure from the gods. But finally, after decades of waiting, Sarah had had a son. They called him Isaac, which means laughter. Partly because Sarah laughed when she overheard the angel tell Abraham that she would bear him a son. But partly, though this is just speculation, the joy it must have been to have a child. After all those years, after waiting for so long. And Isaac was a special child. Ishmael, Abraham's other son by Hagar, the slave woman, was kicked out along with her mother after Isaac was born. God told Abraham that the promises that he'd received of the promised land, a numerous people and a great blessing, would actually pass on through Isaac. It was through Isaac that his offspring would become this numerous people, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. It was through his offspring that Isaac would be reckoned. We saw that in verse 18. But one day God spoke to Abraham again. God asked Abraham to take Isaac, his son, his beloved son, and sacrifice him on Mount Moriah, what we now call the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Can you imagine how Abraham felt after all those years of waiting? He'd waited a whole lifetime for this special son by Sarah. Decades they had waited for God's promises to come to pass, even being given the promise late on in life. Now it just seemed, now it just seemed that God possibly might be able to keep his promise. And now Abraham is asked to take away the seemingly most precious thing in his life and the thing that would mean those promises could be kept. So what was Abraham to do? God's promises seem to say one thing, descendants through Isaac, but his command seemed to say something else, sacrifice Isaac. How could the two possibly fit together? Which one was he to believe? Well, our passage in Hebrews gives us insight into the thinking process of Abraham. Abraham reasons by faith. He reasons by faith. Now, no, that's not a contradiction in terms. Because reason is not the opposite of faith. Unbelief is the opposite of faith. Abraham reasons that if God wants him to sacrifice Isaac, and yet God will give him descendants through Isaac, then God must be able to raise him from the dead. He reasons by trusting in both things that God has said. Both the promise and the command, and reasons that God can raise him from the dead. Now, of course, God stops him right at the last moment and provides a ram instead, doesn't he? Uh, So he doesn't have to sacrifice Isaac. But Abraham fully believed that he would receive Isaac back. And figuratively, we're told, he did. Now, in some Jewish myths, he actually did. So if you read some of the sort of stories that are told around that story, uh, Isaac dies of fright. And God has to raise him from the dead. But here he just says it's figuratively. It's as if he got him back from the dead. And all this, if you think about it, gives Abraham's story a bit of a different feel, doesn't it? A bit of a different emphasis. It's not so much that Abraham was willing to give up the most precious thing to him, though he was, 
It's that Abraham had faith that even death would not stop God from keeping his promises. That Abraham had so much faith in the promises of God that he was prepared when asked to destroy the only earthly means that there was to fulfill that promise. In other words, Abraham believed that God could do the impossible. And it was impossible to Abraham. So in his setting, at that time in history, nobody, as far as we know, had ever been raised from the dead. We sort of read the Bible and we know that Jesus is raised from the dead. At this point, nobody had been raised from the dead. He believed God could do something that he'd never seen. So, of course, Abraham was right, wasn't he? God does raise the dead. We know that now. But he didn't know that then. He had faith that it was true. Because he took God at his word. He believed his promises. And because of that, Hebrews says, he had victory over death. In that he received Isaac back from the dead, figuratively speaking. So that's Abraham's story. That's the the nugget of what we're told in Hebrews. And then we're given these other stories that are sort of tagged on to Abraham. Isaac and Jacob. Have a look at verses 20 and 21. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of his sons, each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Here we're told about Isaac and Jacob. And they too had victory over death in a manner of speaking. The blessing that they received carried on after death. How? Well, they passed it on to their children. Isaac to Jacob and Esau. Jacob to the sons of Joseph. Why the sons of Joseph, though? Why not all of them? If you think about it, there were 12 of them, weren't they? 12 tribes. Why is it just mentioned those two? Well, that's where it's most clear that you can see Jacob's faith. You can see that he's not looking at the seen, but the unseen. Because when he blesses Joseph's children, he blesses the younger over the older. He sort of goes against what the world says with that the older is the one who inherits and blesses the younger by faith. It's the same as Isaac does, but Isaac was tricked into it. I think that's why we're not sort of mentioned uh, that part with Isaac. But Jacob seemingly does it by faith, perceiving the unseen, that it's not going to go the way of the world, but the way that God wants it to go. And Jacob is also held up here as an example of persevering to the end. Now, when you think back to the life of Jacob, if you know much of the life of Jacob, it's, it's pretty safe to say that he had a pretty messed up life. He did a lot of messed up things. And yet, he persevered to the end. Did you notice in that verse that actually he did this act of faith while dying, it says? He's old. He's at the end of his life, but he's still trusting in God's promises. He's still having faith. He's worshipping God, bowing his head down on his walking stick. Oh, let that be me when I'm that old. You know, worshipping God on my walking stick. So they trust God right to the end. They, they conquer death because they pass on these promises. And then Joseph as well uh, conquers death. Have a look with me at verse 22. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, 
made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. You see, Joseph had victory over the grave, quite literally, because he refuses to be buried in Egypt, refuses to be buried in the land that they'd gone to. And instead, he makes his family promise that they will take his bones back to the promised land when they return at the exodus. Hang on, though. The Exodus? Joseph? That's the wrong book, isn't it? That's 400 years later. Why why does Joseph know about the Exodus? Well, it's not that Joseph, I think, got special revelation. Actually, we're told in God's word that this has been told by God uh, long before Joseph was born. You can notice on the back of your notice sheets you've got uh, Genesis 15, 13 to 14. This is God speaking to Abraham. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. Joseph just believes God's promises, because he promised it to Abraham. He believes the promises and he acts accordingly. He tells them that they must take his bones with them when they go. And you know what? We're reading the Bible that they did. When the Israelites enter the promised land, they take Joseph's bones with them and they bury them there in the promised land. So Joseph, by his faith, has victory over death, has victory over the grave. All of these that we've seen in this section had victory through faith, even over death. That's really the story of, of Abraham. But Moses, who comes next, well, his story is a little different. Moses' story of faith was choosing suffering over sin. Let me read to you 23 to 28. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Well, Moses' story, well, Moses was born at a time when the Israelites were living in Egypt. They were immigrants in the land, and as so often has happened through history, because they were immigrants in the land, they became slaves to the native inhabitants. But even though they were slaves in Egypt, the people began to fear them. The children of Israel had grown immensely in 400 years, 72 people to over a million people. And yes, I checked the maths this week. That does work. It does can happen. It would only take five or six generations if each couple had around 12 children like Jacob did. They could form an army, couldn't they, at that size? They could overthrow the Egyptians, so they were scared. So the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, decreed that every baby boy born should be killed by the midwives. But it didn't work, did it? The midwives wouldn't do it. So he decreed that every baby boy of the Israelites should be thrown into the river Nile. It's what we call today probably ethnic cleansing. 
getting rid of all the males from that culture. The girls would have to marry Egyptians, and within a generation or two, the whole Israelite culture would have died out. And at this time, Moses was born. But instead of allowing him to be thrown into the Nile, his parents hid him. Now, there are two reasons that we're told, apart from the obvious, that he's their son. So you wouldn't want to throw your own child into the Nile. The first thing that we're told is that he was beautiful. Now, some commentators go with the fact that he's physically beautiful, that he looked really, really nice. I don't think that's the case. Two reasons, really. First reason is that every parent thinks their child is beautiful. It's true, isn't it, when you have a child... Other people might be looking, thinking, no, this isn't what we're thinking about James, don't worry. <laughs> might be looking on and thinking, oh, yeah, that's a really ugly one. But the parents actually seem to think the child is really beautiful, don't they? You don't get parents to go, oh, yeah, I've got a really ugly baby. You just don't find it, do you? Every, child think, every parent thinks their child is beautiful. If you don't believe me, look on Facebook. You've got all the parents sort of, oh, look at my lovely child. Every child, every parent thinks their child is beautiful. But the second reason that I don't think it really fits is that all the way through we've been seeing, haven't we, that faith is belief in the unseen. Faith is seeing beyond the physical, isn't it? If it was just that Moses was really good looking, it was a really lovely baby, that wouldn't seem to fit with what faith is. It's much better to think that they perceived by faith something special about Moses. And it helps us that the word beautiful there for Moses isn't the normal word for beautiful in the Bible. The word literally means of the city. Urban, if you like. The opposite of a country bunking. Could it be that his parents can somehow see that he's of the city? The city that we talked about last week, the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem. Wouldn't that make some more sort of sense? How? Well, humanly speaking, I have absolutely no idea. But none of this is humanly speaking, is it? It's all by faith, seeing the unseen. They saw that something was special about him. And there was something special about him, wasn't there? He was the one that God used to rescue his people. And they were not afraid of the king's edict. They no doubt could have been killed for their blatant flouting of the king's edict. But they didn't fear Pharaoh. Just like the Hebrews hadn't, the Hebrew Christians that were being written to hadn't feared the authorities when they were visiting those in prison. They didn't fear the king. Their faith made them bold, even in the face of one who had power over even their life and death. So they hid Moses. They hide him, and then when they can do it no longer, they trust him to God's keeping and put him out in his own little ark. That's the word that's used back in Exodus. Not for him to die but like that other ark, that he might be saved. And Pharaoh's daughter finds him, brings him out of the water. Moses' sister has followed the ark and suggests to Pharaoh's daughter that there might be somebody who could look after the child, could nurse him, because of course he'll need nursing. So Moses is passed back to his mother, who raises him until he's ready to be given to Pharaoh's daughter. That's the sort of thing they miss out of the prince of Egypt, isn't it? And when Moses grows up, he takes after his parents. He's not afraid of Pharaoh, but refuses to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And again, here's where we need to get Prince of Egypt out of our head. I know that certainly for my generation, it was sort of required viewing for Christians. But he was not raised as Pharaoh's son, but as his grandson. That's the first thing we need to get out of of our heads. 
It was Pharaoh's daughter that took him in. His rival would not have been his adopted brother, but his uncle or his cousin. And also we need to understand that he didn't associate with the Israelites because he had no option. He just sort of accidentally ended up being with them. Actually, his association with his people was a choice. You see in our passage that it says he chose to be, uh, in verse 25, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God. Acts tells us, for example, that the murdering of the Egyptian that he did, uh, you find it on the back of your notice sheet, tells us that he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. So actually, he was trying to bring salvation to them. He was trying to be a rescuer. His association with his people was deliberate. And that's possibly why Pharaoh wants to kill him. Because actually he's trying to lead a rebellion, really, by the people. He chose to throw in his lot with the slaves rather than to enjoy sin with the slave masters. That's what we're told in Hebrews. But what was the sin he was renouncing? Said it, rather than the fleeting pleasures of sin. Well, more likely, it's life in the Egyptian court with its excesses and indulgences. That would certainly fit with the fleeting pleasures that it mentions. The pleasures of Pharaoh's court were enjoyable in one way, but not lasting, not enduring. And Moses seems to have grasped this, that they just don't last. So Moses instead looked to the future, to the unseen. He saw that the reproach of God's anointed one was worth way more than the temporary fleeting pleasures of sin. Why? Well, we're told, aren't we, that he was looking... To the reward. You see that in verse 26? For he was looking to the reward. So Moses wasn't anti-pleasure. He was pro-pleasure. Lasting pleasure. Eternal pleasure. He was a pleasure seeker, but just not a this-worldly pleasure seeker. Actually, he wanted to miss out on the pleasures of this world to enjoy the lasting pleasures of the future. It's a bit like when you've got a, a good meal coming in the evening. You've had that situation where you're going out for a meal and through the day you're sort of faced with options of eating. You know, oh, there's a packet of crisps over here and what should I have for my lunch? And There's one way of thinking, isn't there, that basically you, if you want to enjoy your meal in the evening, you don't snack during the day, do you? If you want to really enjoy a really good meal, you don't waste it on pot noodles and crisps, do you, on the day? You're sort of spacing your stomach. Well, that's what Moses was doing. He wasn't going to go for the temporary fleeting pleasures offered by sin. He was going for the lasting pleasure. Moses could see he would never enjoy the pleasures of heaven and the pleasures of sin. He had to choose. So Moses chose lasting pleasure over fleeting pleasure. He chose suffering with his people over sinking into sin. Jonathan Edwards calls this the expulsive power of superior pleasure. The idea that you sort of fight fire with fire, pleasure with pleasure. The only issue here is that the pleasure it's talking about is future. It's still to come. It isn't tangible now, but you have to trust that it's coming. So imagine, for example, if I promised you one piece of chocolate now, or a whole bar of chocolate later, 
Now, we all know the logic of that, don't we? We sit and we go, yeah, yeah. The logical thing to do is to wait a little while, get the whole bar of chocolates. But so often in our own life, what do we actually choose? We choose the quick, we choose the easy. We choose the easy over the eternal. We choose the now over the never-ending. But Moses wasn't like that. Moses had faith that the reward was coming. That though it was unseen, it was real. And his faith was such that he turned down the pleasures of now. That he might enjoy the pleasures of the end. Do we believe there's a reward coming for those who choose to be mistreated with the people of God? Rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin? Do we count that reward as greater than the treasures of Egypt, we're told here? Who was the most powerful nation on the earth? The nation that built the pyramids that had coffins of gold. Do we believe that that pleasure is worth waiting for? Do we have faith like Moses to do that? But his story doesn't end there. He didn't suffer passively, did he? He invited the anger of Pharaoh as he pronounced plagues on Egypt. Again, like his parents, he was unafraid of the king. What kept him going through that, through those difficult times? We're told there in verse 27. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king. For he endured as seeing him who is invisible. What kept him going? It was as though he could see the invisible. More than that, really, him who is invisible, God. Going back to our series on joy, if you were around for our series on joy a few weeks ago. The fight for joy is a fight to see the glory of God. That brings us joy and transformation. Moses endured as though he could really see that with his eyes. His vision of God strengthened him to stand before the most powerful man on earth and tell him straight what God had told him. He endured as though he could see the invisible. In other words, he endured by faith. Now, of course, the plagues carry on, don't they? They carried their course through. It wasn't just one, there were ten. And they accumulate with the death of the firstborn. And we're told, aren't we, in uh, verse 28, that Moses kept the Passover with his people, trusting that the destroyer would pass over them because of the sprinkled blood. Do you see again seeing the unseen, trusting in the promises of God? And in that sense, he's not a million miles away from us, is he? Don't we trust that the destroyer will pass over us? Not because of anything good in us, but because of the sprinkled blood. Moses sprinkled that blood for the Israelites. Jesus sprinkled his own blood for you and for me that we might be passed over. Moses lived by faith like we do. And so did the Israelites for a little while. They're tagged on at the end of Moses' story. Have a look at verses 29 to 31. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had uh, given a friendly welcome to the spies. Three things are mentioned here. The Israelites, the walls, and Rahab. The Israelites show faith by crossing the Red Sea on dry land. 
They trust that the walls of water that are either side of them are not going to come crashing down. They believe God's promise that if they walk through, they'll make it to the end. And they do. But the Egyptians who walk through, well, they don't make it to the end, do they? They're crushed uh, crushed by the, the walls of water. The walls of Jericho, it's sort of the other way round. They're said to have come down by faith. The opposite of passing through the water where the walls stayed up. Now the walls, walls come down, yet both by faith. Rahab is mentioned. She is, uh, beats death by faith, welcoming the spies, trusting in their God. She chose the life of the people of God too and threw in her lot with them, just like Moses did. She didn't know, did she, that the Israelites would win. She could have lost everything. But she chose life with them over sin with her own people. She, like Moses, chose that life over a life of sin and God rescued her through it. Now what follows is like a, a sort of countdown on top of the pops. You know, you've had the songs and then you get the sort of countdown of, you know, top, top 40 and it's sort of quick fire all the way through. So we've got two sections we're going to finish with, but they are a bit shorter than the ones that we've had uh, so far. But it's like a countdown uh, of faith, a quick fire of faith. And we get more stories of victory and suffering by faith. What follows are two amazing lists. Now I know normally those sort of Amazing and list does not come in the same sentence together, do they? But in this case, they do. I'm going to read you the first one, 32 to 35a. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, Put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Time is running short, he tells us. So he deals with basically the rest of the Bible after Exodus. He's done the first two, two books, if you like. And now he just sort of deals with everything else. And he lists off these other people of faith from the Old Testament. Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David and Samuel. And a catch-all for all those later and all the prophets. What is it that makes these people so amazing? Well, the author is brief, like I say, so we'll be brief. First, we get victories like Abraham did. So think about it. Conquered kingdoms, we're told, uh, there in um, uh, verse 33. Just like King David went and conquered kingdoms. They enforced justice, like all the judges. And Samuel, they, they enforced justice by faith. They obtained promises Like David, who had the promise of a son who would rule forever. They stopped the mouths of lions. Now, David and Samson both fought with lions. But it's more than likely Daniel who's in mind, who trusted in God in the pit and was rescued. They quenched the power of fire. Probably Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Who were not afraid of the king and were thrown into a fiery furnace, trusting that God would rescue them. I think it's worth just quoting them to give you an idea of what their faith was like. I haven't got this on the back of your notice sheets. I'll just read it to you. This is what they said. Well, Nebuchadnezzar said to them first, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? If you do not worship, you shall be immediately cast into the burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, 
O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. That's faith, isn't it? Standing up against the king, trusting that God will rescue them. And God did rescue them, even though they were thrown into the fiery furnace. We're told that they escaped the edge of the sword. Again, David did this on numerous occasions while escaping Saul. The judges did this as they fought at battles. They were made strong out of weakness. Again, probably most of the judges. Uh, it could be especially Gideon in Midor. It could be Elijah, who was seen very weak at points, didn't he? They became mighty in war. Again, many people on the list you could list that off. They put foreign armies to flight. This made me think about David and Goliath, where David beats Goliath and the the armies just fly off afterwards. Again, it's worth quoting David just to see his faith. The Philistines said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistines, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. That's faith, isn't it? That's what he's talking about. It's told that women receive their dead back by resurrection. That's a reference probably to Elijah and Elisha. But all these people, if you notice, they had victories for God by faith. Not in their own strength, but in God's strength. Believing in his promises, trusting in the unseen. There were amazing victories that were won by faith. But there is another side to this, isn't there? Not only did they enjoy victories by faith... But they endured suffering by faith too. Have a look at verses 35 to 38. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so that it might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted and mistreated of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. You see, the life of faith is a life of suffering in this world as well. But faith sustains us through the suffering. We're told that some were tortured, refusing to accept release. Again, we we find out the prophets are mistreated. So they might rise again to a better life, trusting in the unseen. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. Well, Jeremiah, for example, was repeatedly beaten and put in stocks. The prophet Micaiah was imprisoned by King Ahab. They were stoned. Zechariah was stoned to death for rebuking the people. According to tradition, Jeremiah was stoned to death in Egypt. They were sawn in two. That's apparently how the prophet Isaiah died. He was hiding in a tree and they sawed it in half while he was in it. They were killed with the sword. 
The prophets of the Lord were slaughtered on a number of occasions, weren't they, in the Old Testament? They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute and afflicted, mistreated. They dressed like the poor and needy. They were destitute. They lived as strangers and exiles in the world, just as Abraham had done, and just as we're called to do as Christians. Now, suffering is an atrocious, awful abomination in our world. But it's also completely normal for the Christian. The Hebrew Christians weren't to think that God was picking on them because they were having a hard time. Men and women of faith down through the ages have always suffered. But what kept them going through that was their faith. And the author wants the Hebrews to remember this as they faced this hard time and attempted to turn back. The Hebrew Christians are not alone in their suffering. They have a great crowd of witnesses around them. That word witnesses that we read in Hebrews 12 verse 1 is martyrs. They have a great cloud of martyrs around them. And we see why that word is used here in this chapter. So that was then. But what about now? Well, it comes to address the Hebrew Christians themselves finally. And what's your story in verses 39 and 40? And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. He sums it all up by reminding us that they were commended by faith, their belief in the unseen and the promises of God. They didn't receive what was promised. Why? Well, because they lived in the age of promise, not in the age of fulfilment. They lived under the old covenant of promise, looking forward to the new covenant of fulfilment. Actually, it's only now, under the new covenant, that we have what they looked forward to. For example, assurance of forgiveness, access to God, a great high priest, Christ the Lord. So, that actually means that we have it better than they had it. Not worse, as we might be tempted to think. And we're actually told that without us, that is New Testament believers, they're not complete or perfect. Why? Well, because they only have half of the equation, if you like. They've got the sort of adding up, and we've got the answer. We've got the fulfilment. We live this side of the cross. So we're actually in a better position than they were. It tells us, doesn't it? Since God had provided something better... For us. We follow their pattern, but we do so in a way that's even better than the way that they did. And that's our story of faith. We live in the age of fulfillment. Christ has come. But we do still live by faith, like those who went before us. We live in that overlap of the ages, where the new has come, but the old has not yet gone. So we must carry on in faith. We do have things better than they do. We actually possess the things that they looked forward to. But we too do so by faith. They're held in trust, if you like. But they really are ours. We're told in the New Testament, aren't we, that Abraham and others long to see the days that we live in now. We have things better than they do. Now one day faith will be swallowed up by sight. One day we will see him face to face, but not just yet. Now we still live by faith, don't we? Treading the path that our ancestors in the faith trod. 
Trusting in the promises of God. Believing in the unseen realities behind our lives. Choosing solid joys and lasting treasure over the passing ones. Risking what we have now for the certainty of what is to come. And also enduring suffering and hardships. Knowing that he will not abandon us. So let's pray that God would give us strength to grasp all that God has given us by faith. That we might follow in the footsteps of faith of these great heroes. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that we live in the age of fulfilment. Father, we thank you that Christ has come. Father, thank you that we do have forgiveness of our sins. Father, thank you that we do have that relationship with you. That we have Christ as our high priest. And Father, help us to see that with our eyes of faith. Father, help us to trust in that as our ancestors did before us. Father, give us the faith that we need to keep going, to keep persevering, that we might make it to the end. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.